there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T for C. I am so thrilled to have you along for the ride. And you will be too, especially if you're interested in healthcare or medicine or business or innovation or all of the above. This is the episode for you because my next guest is a medical doctor with her MBA and she's the chief innovation officer at the second largest public healthcare system in the United States. But before I introduce you to Dr. Jean Wright, who's been recognized as one of the top 30 chief innovation officers and one of the 25 most powerful women in health IT in the United States, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And I promise you, it'll only take you maybe 15 seconds to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time the number four coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my curious, creative, and caring cappuccino lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my distinguished guest is Dr. Jean Wright, the Chief Innovation Officer for Atrium Health, formerly the Carolinas Healthcare System, the second largest public healthcare system in the entire United States. As Chief Innovation Officer, Dr. Wright is responsible for leading the advancement of innovation initiatives throughout Atrium Health, which includes 40 owned or managed hospitals, 60,000 employees, and 10 million patient contacts a year. Dr. Wright's focus is on working with teams to raise the bar for patient care and population health through human-centered design, business development, and novel medical technologies. Before moving to North Carolina, Dr. Wright was the executive director of the Bacchus Children's Hospital and the Women's Institute at Memorial Health in Savannah, Georgia. Dr. Wright has also practiced as a pediatric anesthesiologist and intensivist, and I had to look up that word. I had no idea what it meant, which means she cared for seriously ill infants and children who need a high level of monitoring and care. She's held positions as a physician executive at Emory, chair of pediatrics for Mercer, and executive director for Memorial Health's Children's and Women's Hospital in Savannah, Georgia, and was also chief medical officer for Atrium Health. Dr. Wright is also a health services researcher who has served on federal advisory committees and has given testimony in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Wright also has her MBA. She graduated from Emory University's Goizeta School of Business with a concentration in international business. And P.S. Dr. Wright's resume is 16 pages long. So trust me when I tell you, my friends, <laughs> this is one impressive leader. Dr. Wright, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? 
Oh, yes. I've already passed the coffee stage of the day and moved on to the unsweet iced tea. Oh, well, but you are in the South, right? I know, but I just can't face the sugar. I think I think you are very wise to do that. And anybody who listens to Dr. Mark Hyman or any of those folks knows <laughs> that stay away from sugar. Well, I am just so excited to get to tap into all of your expertise and wisdom. Let us dive into the time for coffee espresso shots. These are the 10 questions to help our Java junkies who are interested in this case in healthcare innovation to learn how they can break into this industry. So what entry level jobs are available to young people who want to break into this field? Well, let's start with the person who's not a physician. Because when we use the phrase entry level, entry level for physicians usually hits about the time they're 30 years old. But let's say you're not a physician. If you can get an internship or experience doing human-centered design, doing design thinking, helping a lab create a pilot or a prototype, whether it's in the field that you're ultimately going to pursue or not, it's all really, really valuable experience. Okay. So just very quickly, for our listeners who don't know what it means to say design thinking, what is it? Design thinking came out of Stanford Business School's D school, design school. And it starts with empathy. It starts with observing the patient or the end user, figuring out what their problems are, and then designing for that. Now you could say, well, why don't you just go interview them or have a focus group? The problem is people mean well, and they tell you what they think you want to hear. Instead, when you watch them or you do deep discovery, you realize that their problem may be altogether different than what you thought about. So design thinking is an approach, frankly, much like research methodology, where you have a hypothesis and test it. The difference in design thinking, though, is we start with the end user, or in my case, the patient, and we design most effectively with them alongside of us. And then we'll make a very rough, minimally viable product and prototype it. Now, we're not going to do that for, let's say, a heart valve replacement. That would be far too risky. But if we're trying to figure out how to redesign the experience of registering patients who have memory care issues when they come into a hospital environment, we can test it one way on day one. We can do a pivot that night. Day two, we can bring them in a different order the next day and keep working on it until we get it right. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. So what is a useful skill or skills, and I'm going to put a frame around it saying hard skills and soft skills that you look for in the young people that you hire at Atrium? That's a great question. I would say the number one skill we look for is curiosity. You know, in, in healthcare, medicine in particular, we've been trained to carry ourselves with a lot of confidence. Nobody wants a surgeon or an anesthesiologist to walk in the room going, yeah, I feel pretty good today about, you want somebody that has that presence and says, I can do this. I've done it a thousand times. In our situation, we need the attitude of, yeah, I may have seen it or done it a lot, but I'm really curious. Could we do this differently? Could we do this better? Could we do this faster? Could we do this with a partner? And so keeping that curiosity at the forefront of someone's mind makes them a great candidate for a job in our shop. Excellent. What about a hard skill? 
What about a hard skill? In this day and age, I think there's several. And I might not have answered this a few years ago. I would actually put analytics up there. Because whether you're looking at marketing analytics, social media analytics, electronic medical record analytics, you may not have to create those algorithms yourself. But I do think you're going to need to be able to interpret them. And so when somebody brings you something and says, I think this works and here's why, you've got to have that language to understand, is this a robust algorithm or not? Or can I really pivot my company based on this information you're telling me and feel comfortable doing so? Absolutely. And for our young listeners who may have already graduated, do not despair because they have these wonderful platforms now. One of them is called General Assembly, where you could take a data analytics course from the comfort of your apartment or the room that you live in in a shared house. You don't need to be in college paying thousands of dollars to get this kind of skill. Absolutely. One of our youngest team members is a graduate of Parsons School of Art and Design. She's specifically hired to be a designer. And without me even saying this to her, she took a pop-up class in this. Now, she's one of the ideal kind of employees because she's always out there teaching herself a new skill, whether it's a hard skill like analytics or a soft skill like storyboarding. Oh, what a great example. And that's another soft skill that I'm guessing you look for, and that is being a self-starter. Exactly. In fact, one of the mottos of our team is the word start. We have it in big metal letters over our door because we think the biggest barrier to innovation is not a lack of ideas. There are a lot of great ideas. It's people don't start. They don't make the first messy step into the unknown. And because we're all trained to be excellent at what we do and provide great outcomes, especially in healthcare. We're afraid to go in and do something poorly or badly or messy. And we say, just start. And in fact, there's someone on my team, I can always look to her to have the best idea. And the reason is she has the most ideas. Now, the first 17 are usually terrible. <laughs> if she's listening to this, Elizabeth, you know who you are. <laughs> but she always comes through with the best because she stays in there and says, okay, we don't do this. What if we did this? If we don't do this, could we do this? And that persistence and constantly asking after you start is just so valuable. Elizabeth, you can tell that Dr. Wright loves you. I do. (laughs) (laughs) So what about someone's major? You've already hinted at your answer here, but is it a deciding factor to get into healthcare innovation? In other words, if they haven't studied fill in the blank, is it a deal breaker? Absolutely not. There are no deal breakers for medicine these days. In fact, if you look at medical school curriculum, they're looking at broader and broader students these days. I came through in the generation where, first of all, very few women were physicians. And secondly, you either majored in biology, genetics, or chemistry, period. And that was it. Today, we see people coming in, like, if you really like innovation, biomedical engineering would be a great undergrad. If you like public policy and you really want to do something on the federal level, coming in with a public policy background would be awesome. Uh, Genomics is just going to explode. It is like so right around the corner that By the time this probably 
gets aired, it almost will be dated because genomics is going to be in the family medicine doctor's office. It's going to be at the retail pharmacy. We are going to have it every place around it. So there's a lot of different ways. And honestly, there's a way that you can reboot your career. Let's say you went to pharmacy school to undergrad and you're still fascinated about the application of science to human medicine. Come back. You know, a mid-career student may not have as many years to practice, but now actually with some med schools having free tuition, the burden of the cost of med school shouldn't prohibit you. Fantastic. What about a graduate school degree? And this is less so for those entry-level jobs, more so for someone to get to where you are, Dr. Wright. And I know that you have a medical degree from Wayne State University and your master's degree, your MBA from Emory's Goizeta School of Business. So my goodness, you certainly are very well credentialed. Nowadays, it's not so unusual to see a dual degree physician. Again, in my era, in my business school class, I think there was 50 students. Three of us were physicians. That's it. And we looked around the class most of the time like somebody had dropped us on an alien planet. (laughs) I listened to words like stream of cash flow and a basis point. In fact, I actually had to tip flight attendants on an airplane one time. I was doing an exam and I said, I don't know what a basis point is. And she said, I don't either. And I wrote it. What's a basis point on a cocktail napkin attached 10 bucks. I said, take it to first class. I am sure somebody in first class knows the answer. No joke. That is a true story. And I got my napkin back with the answer. Healthcare people don't know those things. Nowadays, like in our own system, we probably have 25 physician executives who have a dual degree, either in public policy or business or hospital administration or IT, informatics, epidemiology. It's almost like, so, okay, you're a doctor, big deal. What else do you do? And why that's not the way, you know, the future for the rank and file, I think it's becoming more and more both common and an opportunity. I never thought I would say that going to med school was a gateway drug, <laughs> but I think it is. I think it's a gateway to so many other careers. So there are a variety of secondary degrees, including law, that can be added to a medical degree. Oh, that is just fascinating. And I got to tell you, if you were a young graduate of whatever it was, and you told me that story about the cocktail napkin and the creativity that you had to get the answer you needed, I would have hired you on the spot. (laughs) I love that story. So Dr. Wright, what kind of life experiences do you think are most useful for someone starting out in this field? I think you can bring a variety of life experiences. William Osler, one of the fathers of medicine, used to say observation was a critical skill. I think that's been part and parcel of doctors. My own kids will say to me at times, mom, you're looking at me with your doctor eye. And and they can tell when I get that head tilt and I'm trying to figure out, is your head a little big? Are your eyes slamming? What's going on? So I'd say observation. We would hope all people in healthcare would bring empathy. Some do, some don't. That's the reality of it. But empathy really helps when it comes to innovation because we can feel what the patient's feeling, walk in their shoes, understand their battle. You know, I was talking about our designer on our team. One day 
she put herself in a wheelchair and went around Charlotte trying to figure out how difficult is it if you're in a wheelchair to use public transportation. That's empathy. Everybody's smart. I started to say, you know, being smarter. I don't think so. In fact, for years, I sat on the admissions committee of med schools, and we could have filled the classes with people that made straight A's. But that didn't necessarily make for a great doctor or a great innovator. And I think now most med schools have gotten a little wiser and realized test-taking performance isn't necessarily the best or only metric. So here's an easy one for you. What is the best part of being in healthcare innovation? Oh, I have the best job in the whole organization. And don't tell my boss, but I would actually do this job for free. <laughs> because every single day I have people making cold calls. And we have a rule in our, in our shop. We say, make the call, take the call. So we always keep some Google space or 3M right brain time on our calendar to talk to the odd person that calls us. I mean, it won't be unusual for me to get a call and someone will say, I'm in Tel Aviv and I looked you up on LinkedIn and I want to talk to you about XYZ. So we keep some bandwidth, personal bandwidth for those, those kind of calls. I can talk to a big company, something in the fortune, you know, 25 or 50, and they can say, we're looking at co-developing something. Do you have a team that we could embed our engineers with your team and try and figure it out? Um, we get to walk alongside some of the federal agencies, Health and Human Services, the FDA, the NIH, and either advise or partner or work together with them. I meet some of the brightest young people. And now at my age, I, I tell them I'm a millennial. Of course, they, they look at the crow's feet and the gray showing, and they know that's not true. But I tell them, yes, I'm just a double, kind of like a double espresso. I'm just twice your age. <laughs> and that's kind of how I face every day is, is with that enthusiasm and with that open-mindedness that they bring to the table. Well, like a double espresso, you pack a punch. <laughs> so every job, no matter how amazing, no matter if we do it for free, and P.S. I am doing this for free, has aspects to it that aren't so much fun. So what is the part of your current job as Chief Innovation Officer at Atrium Health that sucks the most? I would tell you that there's a thousand points of no for every new innovation we bring to the table. We used to hear about the thousand points of light. There are a thousand people embedded in our organization, almost like whack-a-mole, that can tell us why we shouldn't do it, can't do it, why it'll be harmful, why it'll mess with their workflow. And early on, I might have been likely to take that personally, but we chose not to. In fact, we nickname ourselves the Sherpas because we think Sherpa implies wisdom and humility and that we have some tools, like Sherpas have oxygen and picks. We have some tools where we can help somebody scale the mountain of innovation. And we have to learn to not get bloodied in every fight. We have to act like Switzerland. We have to be charming and influential. And we have to let somebody else maybe deliver the message, even though it was all our idea. Because if our job is really to help accelerate the transformation of healthcare in our system. That's the goal. It's not our individual reward or our individual success. So I'd say it's, it's the thousand points of no. And I would say tied with that, it's the change management. Because many times we're asking people, we've got a different way we'd like you to do this. Like right now, I have a device that we're testing before 
some patients undergo surgery. Well, the test really doesn't impact the surgeon that's doing that case. It has to do with pre-op assessment, but I got to get their buy-in and I got to get pre-op holdings buy-in. And I've got, and so I have to go in and be winsome and influential and get those people a bit like Tom Sawyer to paint my fence. Mm. So I have to constantly be, you know, engendering that. And there are times where we just go, mm, there's too many trolls under this bridge. And we'll turn and go work with another department for a while and either hope that those folks will get enlightened or that there'll be a different opportunity. You're a diplomat, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My sister, much older and wiser than me, used to say, do you want to be right? No pun on my last name. Or do you want to be successful? And I think too early in life, I wanted to be right. And, you know, that's groomed into you in med school. You got to have the right answer. You got to be the helium hand who has your hand up first. You got to be the first to do the case. Whereas later in life, you realize to bring about these big systematic changes, you have to be effective. So I'm actually wondering if that's the best career advice you've ever gotten, or would it be something else? No, I think it is. Although that would mean that she was right yet one more time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully both of you have been successful. I certainly know you have. Yes. So two final espresso shots, Dr. Wright. What movies, if any, or Netflix, Hulu, Amazon shows, or books do you think accurately depict this profession? There's an old movie called Flash of Genius. I haven't thought about this in a long time. And it was a man who had a large family and they were going to mass one Sunday morning. And so the whole Catholic family was stuffed in the station wagon. And he worked at one of the big automakers. And he and his wife started talking about windshield wipers. And he said, I wish they worked like eyelashes where they only blink when you need them to. From that, he invented the intermittent windshield wiper. File for the patent. I won't be a spoiler, but it's the whole struggle of what it takes to go from the flash of genius, which is actually the term lawyers look for when they try to defend intellectual property. When is that moment? Where were you standing? What were you doing when you went, Eureka, you know, or I've got it? I think that probably is the closest to it. Now, I would also say, because I just love Matt Damon in Martian. The way he takes poop and grows potatoes is very inspiring as well. Oh, that was a great movie. (laughs) I love that too. And one thing I do use, like when young companies come to visit us, I say, I use that example of that movie. And I say, you know how Matt goes from the surface of Mars into his little pup tent thing? He always has to go through the decompression chamber or the pressurizing chamber. The innovation office or the innovation engine serves at that for our healthcare system. You mentioned early on how large we are. When young companies come, you know, up against this $11 billion behemoth, they really don't know what door to go into. And so if they come in through our decompression chamber, in fact, a young company, literally two people without even a slide deck came to see me the other day. And I honestly thought the guy was going to pee in his pants during the interview. And I said to him, relax, take a deep breath. I'm the nicest person in the system. I know that. Of course, I was exaggerating, but I said, I am the nicest person you're going to meet, and I'm going to say yes to all your ideas. And suddenly he, well, what was I doing? I was trying to, you know, pressurize him and get him more comfortable so he could really get his idea. So those are my, uh, there's a lot of other movies I like. I love Lost in Space and this series, but that doesn't, well, I guess, I guess there's some innovation in that. Absolutely. (laughs) 
<laughs> Wonderful. Well, we will include Flash of Genius and Lost in Space in our show notes. <laughs> okay. So final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession? I think Java junkies would be surprised to know how many doctors practice the same way they practice when they finish their training. How innovation is not part and parcel of their daily work. Because they get used to a certain antibiotic working. They get used to a certain surgical approach working. And so why change? And a lot of healthcare is driven by consensus, how we always did this. It worked for me for 400 times, so why should I change it? And yet we've taken some of the brightest minds and beaten them down through the medical school process. Can you tell I'm a little cynical about that? And even though I love med school and I taught it for years and years, we beat the creativity and the discovery and the curiosity out of people. And I don't think most folks realize that that's happened to us. Mm, Well, for our listeners, if you want to learn more about what Dr. Wright does as the chief innovation officer at Atrium Health and how she built her super interesting and, dare I say, innovative career. Check out the show notes for this episode to see if her main Time for Coffee interview has already dropped. I also want to let you know that, no surprise, Atrium Health has a podcast. It's called A Sure Buzz Guide. To innovation. And there is also a guidebook called the Innovation Engine Guide to Design Thinking Sessions. It's available on Amazon, and we will include links to all of the above in show notes. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I hope it is heartening to all of our listeners that there are innovation officers like you in the healthcare system who are trying to bring some solutions to some of the incredibly weighty challenges that we are facing in healthcare today. Thank you so much. This has been a blast. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.